Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. By far the most common route to the NBA for American teenagers runs through NCAA basketball. In exchange for a college education of some kind, university athletic programs make vast sums of money both from the loyalty teams inspire from alums and the entertainment players provide to fans. It's not a good deal for many players, especially the most talented, and this system is quite different from pro baseball, hockey, or tennis. But now, new options and leagues are emerging that replace the college or even high school experience. The very best players now have new options and leagues. But will they prove to be less exploitative than what came before? And then, Scorpion Science. Yeah, that's right. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Jalen Lewis is an emerging star basketball player. The 6'9 teenager would have taken the court for Oakland's Bishop O'Dowd, the local powerhouse, as a top-five prospect in the country. But that's not going to happen. Instead, Lewis, guided by his father, signed a huge contract with a new basketball league, Overtime Elite, that's backed by investors like NBA star Kevin Durant, Jeff Bezos, maybe you've heard of him, and the Silicon Valley heavyweight venture firm Andreessen Horowitz. Overtime Elite is perhaps the most radical departure from the old model for young elite basketball players pursuing their dreams of playing in the NBA. But the whole idea of so-called amateur basketball is breaking down. And here to consider whether that's a good thing, we're joined by Sean Gregory, senior editor of Time Magazine, wrote the recent piece, Inside the New Basketball League, Paying High Schoolers Six-Figure Salaries. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks, Alexis. We're also joined by Len Elmore legendary former NBA basketball player and a star at Maryland, also a sportscaster, lawyer, and senior lecturer at Columbia University in the sports management program. Welcome to the show, Len. The pleasure is mine, Alexis. Thanks. My dad used to tell me about you because he was a big UCLA fan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to start, uh, Sean, with you. You know, what is Overtime Elite? Like, what actually is this thing, if people haven't heard of it? um, It's a league, but it's not a kind of a league in the way that we've traditionally thought of it. Yeah, um, there's a lot going on. So let's start with what Overtime is. Overtime is a digital media company that was founded five years ago that basically has found a way to monetize the popularity of high school basketball players. Zion Williamson was their first kind of breakout star. What Overtime would do would, would, would go to Zion Williamson's basketball games um, and show his amazing dunks on Instagram and develop a huge following 
um, kind of highlighting the exploits of high school basketball players in gyms across the country. Overside, overtime said to itself, wait a second. You know, Zion Williamson is in our universe when he's in high school. Then he goes off to Duke. Then he goes off to the NBA. And, um, you know, they kind of take control of him. Right. Why don't we start our own operation, our own league? We're going to the basketball players. Let's bring the basketball players to us. Let's bring them into our, our ecosystem, essentially. And that's what Overtime Elite is. There's 27 players um, in Atlanta. They're high school age, 16 to 19. And they go to school at Overtime Elite. Overtime Elite has an, an high school academic component, but at the same time, they are earning six-figure salaries to play what is essentially high school basketball. They play against each other. These 27 players are divided into three different teams, three different overtime teams. So they'll play each other, and they play other high schools and prep schools across the country. And Overtime is betting that the eyeballs that watch highlights of these games, documentaries on these players will monetize the cost of starting this league, which the costs are enormous. They built a 103,000 square foot facility with a weight room and a gyms and an arena in Atlanta, and they're paying players six figure salaries. And they've hired a, a, a very robust performance basketball coaching staff led by Kevin Ali who um, the former NBA player who led UConn to the national championship in 2014. So it's a fascinating experiment that speaks to how um, it speaks to youth culture, how youth consume media and the changing ways that, that, that people view, view sports and media. And as you mentioned at the top, the, you know, kind of the, the blowing up of the typical amateur basketball, amateur sports model. Yeah, so it's yeah. a fascinating experiment. And that's why we wrote a lot about it. Yeah. Len Elmore, um, how did things work sort of before this? I mean, you were a star basketball player. You were on the number one team uh, in the country as a high schooler. What was your recruiting process like? And then let's kind of walk forward for how recruiting changed kind of since that time. Well, the recruiting process was such that once you were identified as a, a prospect, if you will, you had colleges, coaches coming to watch you play, uh, courting you with dinners and meetings and the meetings with your parents, et cetera, um, you know, extolling the virtues of what college can do for you, uh, let alone for the NBA. Back then, you know, the NBA was a, a goal in, in many ways for a lot of guys, but it wasn't uh, the, it, it wasn't the Holy Grail, if you would. Mm -hmm. it, it would be just focus on, you know, doing the best you can in college and, and you know, what, major do you want as far as uh, leading to a vocation? You know, by comparison today, you know, we recognize college isn't for everyone. And, and so an opportunity to pursue a vocation uh, should be available to, to folks. And, and, and dreams of, of the NBA begin at such a young age today, uh, essentially before the age of reason. When, when, and I mean, reason and reasonableness. Right. When, I, <laughs> when, I was, um, when I was playing, I, I didn't start playing basketball until I was 14 or 15. I actually wanted to be a baseball player. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to, uh, to alter those dreams when they start so young. And now you include parents who look at the money that NBA players are making, uh, and they have dollar signs in their eyes, parents and, and significant others. And so there's no reinforcement as to the value of education or imparting the reality of the minuscule percentage of those who are going to make it to the NBA. Mm -hmm. Instead, 
instead, the influence really comes from rankings, from uh, social media gossip, and, you know, and they all buttress those dreams, regardless of the reality. Yeah. You know, let's not forget that over time, it's still a business proposition. It's not an altruistic operation. They feel that, you know, not only can they be helpful to the young people, but also they're going to make money. Yeah. But the money for the young folks is good, but it's not life changing. Um, in a lifetime, it, it provides somewhat of a leg up if properly managed, but it's not going to last a lifetime. You know, when you look at college education on the whole, you still earn vastly more than those who are non-college uh, educated. And with a few exceptions, you know, and a long losing uh, out on the college experience, I, I think is something that we haven't really discussed. Lifestyle, campus environment, all those things that help you grow. So, you know, I, I see a, a vast difference from when I was coming up and what was uh, promoted uh, for you to ultimately become a college uh, athlete as opposed to today where, you know, that message is being drowned out by, by the messages that, as I said, are, are being uh, pervaded by social media, by, you know, the, the cult of celebration. Yeah. We want to hear from you listeners, too. Are you a young athlete or are you a parent of a young athlete who's kind of not just dreaming of going pro, but trying to make it happen? What's your experience been like out there on the AAU circuit? What do you other people? What do you think of the pathways to playing professional basketball? Are they fair? And for fans, you know, what are your thoughts on these new leagues? Are you actually going to watch Overtime Elite? How might you watch Overtime Elite? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions, your comments, you're thinking about this to forum at kqed.org. You know, Sean Gregory... I think something that's underappreciated by people who don't follow high school and college basketball recruiting is how much these dynamics are no longer driven by high schools, but by AAU teams. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, what is that circuit like and who is making money there uh, off these high school players? Yeah, it's it's been called a lot the Wild West, and it's a cliche, but it's a pretty accurate description. So. You know, when, when Len was coming up and, and even I, I played high school and college basketball as well tw um, in the mid 90s. So even when I was coming up, you know, there were very I mean, when Len was coming up, there might have been no AAU teams. When I was coming up, there were, you know, in New York City, where I grew up, there were two AAU teams and AAU did these were they, they, it was called Riverside Church and the Gauchos. And these are two programs where the very best of the best played you know travel basketball basically in the spring and summer yeah, now called travel the, teams in the old days yeah, yeah they're basically now i would i would guesstimate in the new york city area if there were two in 1993 two or three in 1993 i would guess there were honestly like 200 or 300 now i'm not even joking Every, you know yeah. everybody anybody um can start an aau team i could start an aau team tomorrow get a bunch of kids charge them whatever I'm going to charge them to rent out a gym and, and hold practices. And there are these tournament operators across the country who every weekend at huge sports facilities um, with three courts and, and all this kind of stuff are, are running youth tournaments from everyone from age seven to 17. Mm. And so I can start an AU team tomorrow and make money off it. If I charge enough and, and the cost of entering the tournaments are, are low enough, um, I can make money. The tournament tournament operators make money by charging entry fees and admissions. So it's this whole 
um, industry that has emerged and really exploded in the last. But the players years. can't make money. They can't the be players. Um, no, they can get sponsored. Um, sponsored. They, that's but that's new as of July of this year, right? Well, no, like well, well, the high school players can get their 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 admission sponsored. But yeah, for the college players, they couldn't make money um, before July, and now they can get third party income through name, image, and likeness rights. But for the Which high basically school means players, like endorsement deals, right? That's exactly. Third, like the Olympians get um, for recruiting. To your point about recruiting. Um, so high school athletes now, you know, high school basketball has become somewhat irrelevant for recruiting. The, 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 the way you get noticed is going out in the spring and summer on these quote unquote AAU teams. Some of them are not very elite, even though they, they promise themselves <laughs> that they're going to be elite. And, and the college coaches all go to these showcases. It's efficient for them. Instead of traveling across the country to different gyms, um, you know, to watch Len Elmore play a power memorial you know, back in the day, now they go and, and, and they just go to these big AAU showcases and it's efficient for them. They go to one tournament in Las Vegas, one tournament in Kansas city and see everybody. So that's how you get noticed now. Now just going how overtime elite plays into this, you know, one important thing I think for the listener to understand um, the risk that these players are taking under current rules when you get paid to play basketball at overtime elite as a 17 year old or 18 year old, you cannot play college basketball. You are giving up the opportunity under the current rules to play college basketball because college players can get third party sponsorships. Now they can get money, but if they get paid to pe- play basketball, direct salary to pay back to play basketball, they're considered professional and ineligible. So the players at overtime elite that are 17 and 18 year olds, 18 years old that are getting these hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars salaries, they no are college. considered professionals no and are yeah. or more. They're c- considered professionals and cannot play college basketball, and that's the risk they're taking. And the risk yeah. is if they don't make the NBA, what's going to happen to them after they're done with overtime elite? Yeah. We're talking about the new landscape of amateur and professional basketball players who are in high school with Sean Gregory, senior editor at Time Magazine, and Len Elmore, legendary former NBA player. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new landscape of amateur and even professional basketball for high schoolers with Sean Gregory, senior editor of Time Magazine, wrote the recent piece Inside the New Basketball League, paying high schoolers six-figure salaries, and Len Elmore, former NBA player, sportscaster, lawyer, and senior lecturer at Columbia University in the sports management program. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of the current pathways to playing professional basketball? Are they fair to the players? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. If you're a parent of a young athlete who's trying to make it in pro basketball, you know, maybe you're a parent at Bishop O'Dowd who used to play with Jayla Lewis. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum, where you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Len Elmore, I wanted to ask you about 
something that people used to say a lot about the NCAA uh, historians like Taylor Branch, um, as well as uh, other scholars, that basically the way that the NCAA developed ha- was racist, and that it that unlike uh, white dominated sports where players were able to immediately. Um, you know, be paid professionally or, you know, like take tennis, for example, that 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 the vast uh, that that the reason why the NCAA uh, existed in its very existence was uh, was racist and was different from the way that we dealt with with other sports. Um, What do you what do you think about that? Look, I mean, I'm not going to go into a total uh, social sociological uh, that section of systems, but there's racism in, in just about every element of, of American life and system. But we don't need to go there uh, to recognize that you know basketball uh, was was somewhat different as football because they were revenue generating sports. And there was a period of time when you know African American players were not the predominant uh, numbers in in those particular sports. And, and yet the rules remain the same. So I'm not going to go that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I will say that, um, you know, it, it's a good point that Sean made before the break uh, about the loss of basketball eligibility. And, and again, you know, college education still has value with few exceptions uh, versus a non-college uh, educated individual. And, and over time, elite essentially says that they will pay. They answer the question by saying they will pay for college education uh, if the young man doesn't make it to the NBA by the time they're 18 or 19. Hmm. But realistically, um, you know, when we think about the system, realistically, if they haven't made it uh, at that point in time, are they really going to go to college uh, without eligibility? They're going to go to class in a college environment where their peers who decided rather than go to overtime to go into, you know, college are now not only enjoying the educational benefits, but also enjoying the life of a college athlete, you know, the adulation uh, and being in the spotlight uh, and all those different things. But the pride and even the hubris of young athletes today, you know, I doubt if many, if any, are going to ultimately go to college. So where are you left? You left uh, at the beginning. So when you think about systems, I mean, you think about calling it racist, et cetera, it's still about opportunity. I, I can't say that my experience at the University of Maryland was uh, the product of racism because I got a college education that I extraordinarily value. Mm-hmm. All I had to do was remain eligible and to uh, you know, do the best I could on the surface. And in return, I got opportunities that I, I couldn't have dreamed of, which included playing professional basketball and going to Harvard Law School and becoming an attorney and everything else that and I've been since then. And I don't think I can attribute that uh, to, to anything but opportunity. We're now joined by Aaron Ryan, who is Overtime's elite commissioner and president. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You know, we've been talking about your league, obviously, and I wanted to give you a chance to sort of, when you think about the difference between Overtime Elite and uh, a player choosing to go to an elite college or, you know, staying on the AAU circuit and then going to an elite college, what do you think the big difference for the players is? I mean, the the big difference for the player is opportunity and an opportunity that is actually afforded a lot of other uh, 
people and walks of life that have experienced sort of the, the have had the experience of being a prodigy or the potential of being a prodigy, whether it's a concert pianist, an opera star, a tennis player, a golfer, an international soccer soccer player is an opportunity to pursue different paths. Certainly not 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 just to necessarily go play pro basketball, but specifically to take on a journey that's that that they're ready or they believe they're ready and with eyes wide open um, that they that they want to pursue a different path that still prepares them for life that still addresses their 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 path related to high school academics um, but also starts to put them in scenarios that are more akin to the training development and life skill conversations that will be required uh, for a path towards professional basketball, whether it be in the NBA or other places in the world. But Aaron, let me ask you this. Like, we know that only a small subset of the players, uh, you know, certainly in college, right? 6,000 college players and just maybe, you know, a, a couple dozen NBA prospects is called three dozen or something. It's kind of going to be the same in your league. So how many players are you turning away and saying like, you know what, you're not, this isn't for you actually, because you're not actually likely to make it to the NBA. Well, there were, there were, there were conversations with a number of families where either we opted out or they opted out once we started to get into a conversation about really providing uh, the clearest understanding of, of what OTE is and what the decision they're making and the commitments they're making. And so, um, listen, this is our first year. And so it gives us a chance to learn a lot. We have 27 athletes today and the profiles of what, 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 sort of defines an OTE athlete will not only be through the conversations that we have, but we'll start to identify profiles and quite frankly, a diagnostic that, that both families and us as a league will be able to go through over time, just like any other business. Right. So our ability to iterate and refine that will, will continue to, uh, to, to, to develop. Um, This is a decision both as an organization, but also amongst families um, that, that they want to, be a part of pioneering is not because of for any other reason that we're addressing issues that have been involved in the system relative to skill development, um, a lack of customized curriculum in education for people in this unique situation who play at elite levels of sport and also economic empowerment. And so these aren't things we made up. These have been things that have been talked about for a long time. And the reality of it is, is this, this sort of, this sort of, um, Discussion and dialogue around amateurism and the path to pro is uniquely an American conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. Like European. Is that kind of what you see as the model for, for you all is sort of like, you know, you go over to like Premier League and there's tons of teenagers who are a part of the these franchises. Parts of it, I, I think we're unique in that uh, the foundation of what we are is uh, the next generation sports media company. And so we while we certainly have elements of an academy and we certainly have elements that would resemble sort of the practicum and the approach of a Real Madrid or a uh, an FC Barcelona, we also invest in in education in a different way we're working with with educators who are are proficient in teaching uh um, self-paced learning. We have curriculum collaborators who are from the business sector and private sector who help us with things like financial literacy, business of basketball, public speaking that are unique to us. Um, and they're also unique to the pressures and the realities of being a high profile 
professional basketball player in this world. So Sean Gregory, as we just were hearing from Aaron Ryan, the overtime elite commissioner and president, um, we they are not the only um, league or entity that's trying to fix some of these problems in the system. Uh, we know that these problems have existed. You know, we've, we've talked about them earlier, you know, AAU ball, college basketball, other other things. So we've got a, a couple things to look at. Maybe G League Ignite, which is kind of after some of the same players, I'm sure, like a guy named Scoot Henderson. There's there's a, there's a bunch of different new options that are emerging. It kind of feels like amateurism had all these cracks, and now it's kind of shattered all at once. For sure. And, you know, what started to happen um, like seven, eight years ago, there was a guy named Brandon Jennings who rather than – um, go to college. And I think he even did this before his senior year of high school. He went overseas for a year, you know, before he got drafted into the NBA. So, you know, because of NBA rules, you can't go straight from high school um, to the pros anymore. Like since say, 2006, LeBron. right? That was a, right uh, since 2006. So LeBron James did that. Dwight Howard did that. So um, that's not available. Now that might change in the next NBA collective bargaining agreement over the next few years. There's been whispers that maybe, um, you know, we'll go back to a world where high schoolers can finish their senior year of high school, then get drafted into the NBA. So now we have this, what, what's emerged since 2006 is one and done, right? You go to college for one year, particularly at a, say, a Kentucky, which has become kind of a one and done factory, and then go right to the NBA. Kevin Durant did that, for example. He spent the year at Texas and then got drafted um, after his freshman year. So, um, and now there are more alternatives now to one and done. Overtime elite being you know, the kind of the most interesting and most innovative and fascinating to see. But you know, you mentioned G-, G League Ignite. That's another good example. You know, the G League is, a- is affiliated directly with the NBA. And so what's happening is you can now go to G League Ignite for a year or two and get paid. You're a professional. And then and then you're affiliated with a team, with an NBA team. Um, excuse me, with a G League's affiliate with the NBA. So you join the G League Ignite team and then you enter the draft. So that's a, you know, that's a true professional option. I think what Overtime Elite is, is combining is the uh, professional option with the, you know, high school diploma. So then they can bring in 16, 17 or even younger kids into the fold. And that's what we're seeing with Overtime Elite. Some of the kids there would have been uh, sophomore juniors in high school instead of even seniors. Yeah. I, you know, Aaron Ryan, one of the big changes that's kind of underlying all this is just that these players have these massive social media presences, as does Overtime um, itself. I mean, how do you see that changing sort of the kind of basketball that's played? I mean, one of the things that I, in reading, you know, Sean's article, an article that came out of the New York Times, you know, it's kind of hard to show like solid defense and screen setting like as highlights. Um, do you do you worry that it's actually going to change that the that the business side of the way that you guys do basketball is going to change the way that the game is played? No, because coming into this, I, I had a 22 year career in the NBA, and and when I came in and committed to to helping build this out. Uh, we were very specific and deliberate on what types of individuals and the types of talent and experience we wanted to build out in our basketball operations staff. And to get a coach of Kevin Ollie's stature, Dave Lado, to get Brandon Williams to commit to this business, 
it required there to be a serious approach to basketball. They were not coming to overtime to help us build a highlight factory. And the fact of the matter is, is we are all moved by these 27 young people and their families to try to help deliver their dream. And their dream is not to retire after overtime elite. It's to play professional basketball. So we take it very serious that we're here to prepare young people for uh, like in, to, in, in pro basketball, but well beyond it. And so that preparation has to be taken serious. And that's exactly what we've done. One piece to correct, although overtime often gets sort of noted for highlights, we have a lot of medium and long form programs. And in fact, as it relates to overtime elite, while we have over 500,000 TikTok followers in less than six weeks, we also air our games 45 to 60 minute uh, mm -hmm. game recaps on YouTube that are getting phenomenal results and are actually portraying the entire game. And so I don't expect our varying formats of content to inform how we play basketball. I think for basketball fans out there, it's, it's worth taking a look at them just so you can see how different that broadcast looks. It's, it really is kind of boundary pushing ads like sports media. It's, it's fascinating. Um, Lana, I got a, a comment coming to you. Um, a guy named Andres writes, I'm a former Division One athlete who played travel ball since I was nine years old. I'm now 32. I wish I would have had an intention to take care of my mind, body, and spirit throughout the process because one day my identity would not be defined by playing sports. The culture of driving your body into the ground for the sake of the win had lifelong implications. I now live in chronic pain and will forever. I hope beyond thinking about whether this is fair for kids growing up now in intense competition, can we also think about whether this level of pressure, largely for the sake of money, is worth the cost it will take on young athletes over the course of their entire lives? Len, how do you think about this? I think it's a, it's a good question, and it's all about putting things and life in perspective. Um, you know, the, the over the course of a career, even if you make the NBA, what's the average? The average has risen now since I played, but what is the average player going to play? Four, five, six years? And then you've got the rest of your life. You talk about being defined solely as a basketball player. And I understand the training and some of the things that, you know, this particular program over time and week provides. But, you know, I, I still don't believe that there's any substitute for higher education and we, the numbers bear that out. Um, but in the end, you're right. You have to keep it in perspective. We see a lot of bells and whistles um, considering where we are as, as a society today with, you know, being a social media uh, darling, uh, the videos, the, the public relations, even the, the overhyped uh, element of high school players going to the pros or, or even one and done's. We don't talk about the people who haven't made it, which is a far larger number, far larger number than the ones who have made it. Uh, what's happened to them? And, and the, the, the writer uh, of that particular question, you know, really speaks in describing what happened to him, really speaks to what's going on with those people who don't necessarily ha have made it. And so you have to be prepared, you have to be prepared for life, to live life and, and to, to pursue life on its own terms. And a lot of that has to do with the, um, the experiences that go beyond just playing the sport, go beyond the NBA dreams. And, and I'm hopeful that, you know, this uh, Overtime Elite particularly, uh, while it right now is an experiment, uh, I hope it can be successful to the extent that the ones who don't make it still have an opportunity to, to pursue life on, on, on its terms and not be defined 
only as a basketball player. Because if that's what happens ultimately, then it, it's gone horribly wrong. I hope it reveals facts and information that can help young people going forward. Aaron Ryan, I want you to respond to this question too, and and really on a specific way. Um, what you do for players' mental health, which we know has been an issue for a lot of players in the NBA, that's that's just be starting to emerge just in the last minute here. Sure, uh, we approach we approach the whole athlete from a health perspective, and so whether it's diet, sleep, um, preparation, rest, recovery, and mental health, every day at Overtime Elite starts in in really sort of a, we start in circles. We start with morning circles. And what those circles are meant to do with our learning facilitators and our coaches is to really give these athletes the beginning of a journey of, of vulnerability, of empathy, but also starting to really get in touch with themselves. The pressures of whether it be family coming into town or reaching out the pressures of their of of their circles or living away from home for the first mm-hmm. time some of which are living from you know have moved from right. Europe all the way here and beyond and so the reality of it is is we take on the whole athlete for exactly the reasons that 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 the that the that the writer or the or the the person who commented was referring to which is I hear stories about AAU tournaments where teams are going to Walmart in between games to get basically swimming pools and filling it with ice and going through a, you know, quick serve restaurant uh, drive through at 11 o'clock at night for the first meal they've had since two o'clock in the afternoon. That is not the way to prepare your body and, and, and really sort of habits for a life in pro basketball or beyond. Yeah. We've been talking about the new landscape of amateur and professional basketball for high schoolers with Aaron Ryan, Overtime's Elite Elites Commissioner, Len Elmore, former NBA player, sportscaster, lawyer, and Sean Gregory, senior editor with Time Magazine, who wrote the recent piece Inside the New Basketball League, paying high schoolers six-figure salaries. Thanks so much to all three of you. Thank you. Great discussion. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.